We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Thank you, Kendall. Let's take a look here at Mark chapter 14 with me. We're going from the Passion Week to Mark 14 through 15. It is simply called the Passion or the Sufferings of the Christ. It's a period that looks at his betrayal, the Last Supper, the Upper Room Discourse, Gethsemane, the arrest of Christ, the trials, six of them, the torture, the crucifixion for six hours. It is the vortex of history. It's the nuclear reactor of the Bible. All of the Bible leads up to it. The Bible behind it flows from it. It is where God and men, where sin and righteousness come to a head. What I want to do to you is simply to stitch the events together in stereo. You really feel, whenever you're in the passion of the Christ, and you, you feel like preaching, you feel like you're in the holy of holies. You don't feel like entering into it. You just feel like showing just the naked truth. This is what happened to our God when he became one of us. There's no story like it. There's nothing that resembles it anywhere. As a matter of fact, whenever you go to a movie and see a parody on it, see a parable on it, everybody sits totally entranced not knowing what they're looking at. Have you ever seen the Green Mile? It's the gospel. I don't know what Stephen King was thinking, or who did that? Was it Stephen King? Yeah. John Coffey, J.C. He is a black man in a white world. He's out of place. He's immense. He is so powerful that he can merely take you and break you, and yet he is incapable of evil. There's something in him that is just righteous. He can even take your pain onto himself and harm himself that you can walk away. He is accused of something he did not do. He is surrounded by his accusers who hate him. The, the pilot's wife, the warden's wife, sees him in a dream, and he comes to her. Uh, Tom Hanks, the centurion, knows he is innocent, but has to pull the plug, to pull the switch on him. He dies between, you know, Wild Bill and Edouard Delacroix. And if he touches you, he can give you immortality. I don't care if you're a mouse. He can give you immortality. And for the rest of your life, you're to go on talking about him and whom you touch brings immortality. Sound familiar? John Coffey. You ever see the Shawshank Redemption? An innocent man convicted of what he did not do, stuck in a place with an evil warden, with an even eviler henchman, Hadley, and he digs through filth and emerges clean, that famous scene of him standing in the rain. And then he goes forth to paradise to release his friend to paradise and to return judgment on evil. Sound familiar? You ever see the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? I watched a cartoon on it one time, and everybody just sat bolt upright silent 
I wanted to stand up and say, let me interpret what you just saw right here. And that's why there's no story quite like this. It says in verse 1, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Passover night, as I understand, begins on a Thursday and goes into Friday, that unleavened bread begins. We're two days away, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. The reason they want to kill him is that Jesus, just previous to this, did a miracle. He raised a man from the dead who had been dead for four days, whose name was Lazarus. And after he did, it says in John 11 and verse 47 through 53, that the Pharisees said, the whole world's going after him. And they said, if this continues to take place, the Romans will come and take our religion and take our nation from us, accusing us of sedition. Caiaphas said, you know nothing at all. Is it not better and expedient for one man to die rather than the whole nation perish? And for that day, they sought how to kill him. This man has got to die because if everyone follows after him, they're going to take our religion. And it says that he being the high priest that year, God prophesied through him that Jesus was going to die for the people and for the children of God that are scattered abroad, you and I. And so with the resurrection of Lazarus, they say, this can't go on. One of us is going to lose out, the nation or him, and they choose him. It says in verse 2, or rather verse 1, it says they seek to seize him by stealth. If they take him publicly, a riot will occur, and that will defeat its purpose. So they have to find a way to make a plan where from a Thursday night to a Friday morning in 12 hours, they can go from an arrest to getting him on the cross with nobody knowing what happened. How would you like to try that? They were the most famous person of the day, and you've got to get him on the cross within 12 hours. It involves getting him alone and away from the crowd. You've got to catch him alone. And to do that in a city where there's a quarter of a million people bustling about at Passover, you're going to have to have an insider that will give him away. In other words, you need a betrayer on the inside. And you're going to have to have an arrest. It's going to have to be at night. And it's going to have to be done by Rome. Israel cannot put to death, only Rome can. And so Israel will arrest him at night. And then they're going to have to have a Jewish trial and accuse him of sedition. The Romans don't care if you claim to be the son of God. What they claim is that you're trying to overthrow Rome. So they have to find him guilty of sedition, which they can't. And that means they're going to have to hire false witnesses and pay them to be there. And it means that you're going to have to have a trial before the Sanhedrin in the dead of night, which is illegal, and not all of them can be there because certain of them, like Nicodemus and Joseph, have an affinity for Christ. And you're going to have to find him guilty of what he didn't do by hired witnesses and then hold him overnight in a dungeon called Caiaphas' dungeon. And then you have to have a trial in the morning, again, before the Sanhedrin. Jewish tradition said that if you were found guilty of a capital offense, there had to be two trials with a 24-hour period between them. 
We're going to do it on a Thursday night and then again on a Friday morning, and that will suffice for 24 hours, so they feel. And then you're going to have to communicate to Pilate that you're going to bring a guilty man to them to be found guilty first thing in the morning, and so that you're going to have to get him on a cross by 9 o'clock, and nobody can know. And you can hang him outside of Jerusalem, outside the Damascus Gate, where everybody can come and look at him and say, behold the man. He is no threat to us. And so, in verse 3 and following, there are two people that are mentioned here. One is called Simon the leper in verse 3, and then Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Both of them have been touched by Christ. Both of them give their all. The amazing thing is, you can go to John chapter 12, and it says that these events occurred six days before Passover. Mark places them right before the Last Supper. And it's believed that he does it as a contrast in this sea of evil that you will have these islands of faithfulness that are pictures of piety, of what it should look like. Simon, it says, was known as Simon the leper. Uh, he's a man who now could do what he had never done before as a leper that was outside the temple and outside the nation. He can have a feast with his family and his friends in his house because he's no longer a leper. Have you ever noticed a lot of times when you get saved, you're still known as Freddie the drunk or something? Uh, Jane, the pool player, and yet you're a saved person. Paul said, any man that is in Christ is a new creation. Old things pass away. New things have come. So he is still Simon the leper, but he knows he is Simon the clean because Christ has touched him. And he is not afraid of being put out of the synagogue, which will happen to you if you know where he is and don't tell anybody, according to John 9. He doesn't care about being excommunicated. He has been outside the synagogue, and he knows what's that like. And he's not afraid of being put to death because he's already died. He was a leper. And so he found it, I think, very freeing. He has nothing to lose. And so like an alabaster jar of pure nard, he will be broken and poured out for this man. And you see Mary in verse 3 having a very costly perfume of pure nard. Nard is an, a root of a plant found in India that is brought up into Israel. Uh, Twelve ounces of it cost 300 denarii. That's almost a year's work. And so this is something that a woman would keep maybe for her wedding. You wouldn't just simply, uh, you know, put it in proportion. You would break it all at once, and it would fill the house with an aroma. And I'm sure she's maybe waiting for her wedding day. But what she does is that she simply breaks it and pours it over his head. John says she pours it over his feet, and she takes her hair, and she wipes his feet with it. And so this is uh, a picture of piety. See if it sounds familiar. It's someone taking their most treasured thing and someone taking all of their most treasured thing and of somebody breaking it and pouring it out at the feet of one 
that in verse 8 anoints him for burial, she knows something about Christ that nobody else knows. That's what happens when you sit at the feet of Jesus. Every time that Mary is mentioned in the New Testament, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha's running around. She's seated. She is worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And in John 11, she falls at the feet of Jesus to say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so that's the way a, a Christian is. They, they, uh, they sit, they worship, and they wonder at the feet of Christ. And so she and Simon, one's a man, one's a woman, one is a leper, one is a society woman, but they're both broken, and everything they have is given to him. Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all. Therefore, all died. That the life that they live, they no longer live uh, in the flesh, but for the glory of God. They live for him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And so, she comes to his feet. She takes her glory to wipe his feet. And in verse 4, some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? She saw as worship what they saw as waste. Anybody know who the uh, apostle was that led the way in criticism? It's Judas. Because he said we could have sold it for 300 uh, pieces, uh, 300 denarii, and that would have been a little bit more to steal. Because that's what he was doing as the money keeper. Judas is the only disciple that is from the south. He is from Kerioth. Judas, the man of Kerioth. Judas Iscariot. The rest of them are from uh, Zebulun, from Naphtali, from Kentucky, Oklahoma, from they're rustic people, but this is an educated man down here. It was said that if you wanted to get rich, you went to Nazareth. If you wanted to get holy, you went to Jerusalem. He was in the south. And so he said, this has been a waste. Incidentally, do you remember another time that she is seated at Christ's feet and her sister accuses her? Why have you left? Why have you let, how's he, how's he put it? Lord, don't you care that this woman has left me? to do all the serving alone. I'm the only holy person here. Tell her to get up and to help me. And Jesus said, she said, tell Mary, he said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered. Same word as is used in verse six. Why do you bother her? You're worried and bothered about so many things. Martha saw as uh, laziness, what Mary saw as learning. Judas saw as waste what Mary saw as worship. There's always been that tension between kind of the left brain and the right brain of the body of Christ. Some love to worship and love to learn. Others say, don't waste time. Let's get out there and work. Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good part. It is a delight to sit at my feet and learn. And then you go out and you serve and suffer. The good part is to sit. If we get to where we're not sitting and worshiping and laying questions before him, our work and our worship is going to become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And so Mary is always getting rebuked because people don't understand her spirituality. And so in verse 
5, this could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. And in verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me because in verse 7, she knew what no one else did. You, the poor you have with you always, you, do, you can do good to them. You don't always have me. She's done what she could. She took her best. She gave all of her best. She bowed as low as she could bow. She took the, her woman's glory, her hair, that becomes, remember John the Baptist, I'm not worthy to unlatch the sandal on his, or the, the, something other on his sandal. And she said, my hair is at his feet. So she has done what she could to give all of yourself completely at the feet of Christ. That's the best I can do. And so you don't always have me. She's done what she could. She anointed my body for burial. Mary knows what no one else knows. This man is going to have to die. In verse 9, truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. What she did is going to become a prophecy. Wherever the gospel, verse 8, anointed my body for burial, a bad thing is about to become a good thing. A defeat and a death is about to become a blessing. And it's going to be a gospel. This blessing is going to be a message, and it's going to be preached. And in verse 9, it's going to be preached to all the world. It's going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. Jesus sees his death. Jesus sees the purpose as being the gospel message to the entire world. And only he and Mary understood that. The Abrahamic covenant says, in your seed shall the nations be blessed. And somehow Mary understands that. And Jesus said, this is about to go to the whole world. And this woman is going to be remembered. You know why? Because she's going to be canonized in the book of John. And you'll look at it. So Christ understands that there's about to be a death. There's about to be a message. There's about to be a salvation to all the world. And there's going to be a record of it. And Mary is going to be in it. How about that? And Jesus could see it in one sentence, what was going to happen. And so in verse 10, then Judas from Kerioth, one of the 12, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. Judas said, that tears it. This guy is just too spiritual. I want a kingdom. I need money so I can buy land for the kingdom. There's too much talk of death. There's too much talk not of Moses and manna and blessing, but of the bread of life. Too much talk about give my body for bread, my blood for drink. If you eat of it and drink of it, you have life in yourself. He said that is just too ethereal for me. And so he leaves to betray him. He goes to the priest and the Pharisees and he says, do you want him? You've got him. 
you've got him. And they are delighted and they pay him money. And that's going to seal the deal. And what he has agreed to do is to tell them where Christ is going to have the Passover. When you would come into Jerusalem for the Passover or any of the feast, you would find a Jew that would open his home and let you be there and do what you need to do, their family. And he knows that Christ will do that. And he's going to listen to where it is. Probably as the money keeper, he'll have to go arrange it. Then he's going to beat a path, and he's going to tell them this is where he's going to be. And they give him 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you know your Bible, this can remind you of something. Do you remember a fellow in the Bible named Joseph? Whose name means he adds and he takes away. Rebecca said, I know it was Rachel. She said, may God add to me another son. And he did, gave her Benjamin. And God has taken away my reproach. And so she names this child Joseph. And so Joseph is the one who has the dream that both his brothers and his, and his father and mother, all of the nation of God will bow down to him someday, just like Christ. And he tells his brothers, they don't like the fact he has been designated as firstborn and given the uh, robe as the good shepherd. They don't like the fact that uh, he has given a supposed vision from God that he's going to be the ruler someday. And so they cast him to the pit. They take a, his robe, they drench it in blood, and they circulate it among the incipient nation of their father and those at the home that this man is not going to rule. He is dead and cast into a pit. He is never to be found again. And then Judas, Judah, his brother, says, you know, there's not any money to be made in this. Let's, and he looks up and he sees a bunch of Ishmaelite traders. He said, let's sell him to them and make some money off of it, and they'll take the evidence away. And so we'll tell them that he's dead, but in fact, he's not dead. He's among the Gentiles, where the prophecies are coming true, and he's ruling over them. Do y'all know of another Jew who was thought to be dead, but he's not? He's ruling over the Gentiles? Yeah. And so they sent him into Egypt, and they went back, and they agreed, we're going to lie to our daddy. And they broke their daddy's heart for 20 years. And Joseph did quite well. And so Joseph was betrayed by Judas for 20 pieces of silver. That is the price of a slave that's been gored by an ox and is useless. Is Christ pretty valuable to us? Yeah. But if you're not a Christian, you think that he is not really the Son of God who died and rose from the dead as a redeemer. You think he is merely a guy that got caught and killed that he's simply a slave gored by an ox. He's dead. You are of Judas. Uh, there was another fellow in the Bible. See if you can remember this. He happens to have long hair and he likes to tear lions in half. Okay. Who are we talking about? Samson. And uh, he is delivering Israel from the Philistines. And a bunch of guys from Judah say, we got a problem, because if he keeps whooping on the Philistines, pretty soon they're going to come take our nation from us. And so they agree, and the men of Judas 
take Samson and bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles to put him to death so they can secure their nation. Sound familiar? And it says that he makes them agree that they will not touch him because he'll go off on them. So don't touch me. So they turn him over. He breaks the bonds like flax in the fire. And then he takes a jawbone of an ass from a place called Ramoth, Lehi, where they would throw out the dead animals and let them die, throw out their bodies and let them rot. And it's called the hill of the skull, the hill of the jawbone. Is there another hill of the skull in the Bible? Yeah. And there on the hill of the skull, he takes death and by death, he slays death and brings redemption. And then he cries out to heaven, I thirst. And now the hill of the skull opens up and becomes in hakor, the spring of the one who calls out. And from death, there is life flowing out like the water of life. Sound familiar? And so he is betrayed over to the Gentiles by the men of Judas so they can secure their nation, just like this. Remember a fellow named David, and he is running from Saul. God ordained him to be king at 15, approximately. And at the age of 30, uh, he get, finally gets to be king. Saul's trying to kill him. Saul organizes the nation against him. Only the faithful that know what God is doing leave the nation and come to David as a remnant of the faithful. There's a bunch of guys from the Philistines, the Carathites and the Pelethites, and they all come, Philistines, to watch over him. Uh, there's a fellow from Heth called Uriah the Hittite who comes and is loyal to him. Jew and Gentile come to David the king, David the beloved. But there are some guys from a city called Zuf, Z-U-P-H, Zuf, called the Ziphites. They're the men of Judah. And they don't want to put their nation in jeopardy. And so they go to Saul and say, if you want him, we know where he is. You've got him. So the men of Judas betray David to his death. We know where he is. The men of Judas betray Samson, the one on the hill of the skull that uses death to defeat death. And, the, and Judas betrays Joseph, the good shepherd, and sends him among the Gentiles. And so if you've read this story, you go, hmm, it looks familiar. And that's why the book of Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament sees Zechariah put on the clothes of a shepherd. And then he asked the leaders of Israel, what am I worth to you, your good shepherd? And they gave him 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver, which was nothing. The price of a slave that you regard as useless. He's merely wounded. He's not sacrificial. He's just wounded. And they give him 30 pieces of silver and God says, what will I do with this magnificent gift? Throw it to the potter. Take it and throw it to the temple, to the guy who's making pots for, for money on the side. Just let him have it. And later on, a guy would take 30 pieces of silver and would betray Christ for it and would use that money for uh, a field that would be called Potter's Field, Zechariah. And so this 
opens up into a chasm when you see it, that you go, I've seen this before. I've seen the shadow, and here is the substance. And so, in verse 10, he goes off to betray him. And they were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money. The deal is sealed. And so he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. What he has to do is he has got to find the place that the Passover is going to occur. And so a day away, he leans in close because Christ says in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat this Passover? Judas leans in close because as soon as he says at 2300 Beersheba Avenue, he's going to write it down. He's going to exit stage right, and he's going to the Pharisees and say, I know where he's going to be. If you'll be there with the guard at night, he's yours. And so Judas leans in. Make a note. Never try to outmaneuver an omniscient person. They'll always outflank you because they know everything. And so in verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said, now I think Judas might have thought he would have been one of them because he's the money keeper. Incidentally, why don't they make Matthew the money keeper? Because he's with the IRS. And they don't want to give him their money. They'll give it to Judas. Maybe Judas is used to being used for a purpose like this. And so he leans in there. And Jesus says, I think, sit this one out, Judas. Uh, John... Nathaniel, y'all go. I can go. No, no, thank you. Because I know just I'm a step ahead of you. And I'm not going to tell you where we're going to have it. I've already arranged where we're going to have it. Because I knew what you were doing. And I'm not ready to be arrested. Because I've got some things that need to be said between about 7 and 9 o'clock. That's called the upper room discourse. And so... You guys, I want you in verse 14 or verse 13 to go into the city and a man will meet you. How do you know? Trust me. Trust me. I know you're rising up, you're going down, you're going out, and you're coming in. I know everything that you're doing. And so I know the steps of a man that are ordained by God. And so a man is going to run into you. Really? And it's going to be a certain kind of man. He's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Men did not do housework. Apparently, the men that follow Christ do. And so, you're going to see the oddity of a, of a man serving his wife. Let's move on. And he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. How do you know? Trust me. How about just a pitcher? Nope, it'll be a pitcher of water. How do you know? Same way I know everything. You just walk in, you're going to see this guy that's going to walk right in front of you. You're kidding. Follow him. And in verse 14, he's going to enter a house. And you're going to say to the owner of the house, why, there's going to be an owner that comes in? Yep. How do you know? Trust me. I know. The owner of the house is going to come and see you. And you're going to say, the teacher says, 
Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's already been arranged because Christ knows everything that Satan is going to do. And in verse 15, he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And so Judas has got a problem. Because now in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And Judas has to go with the twelve. And he looks up and goes, ah, here it is. Okay. But we're already about to start the Passover. The first thing you do is you have to wash feet. We're looking for a volunteer. Can't find one. Who does the foot washing? Jesus. And so he washes the feet, Judas's feet. And I'm sure he must have had his eyes look at Judas. And their eyes met, I think. I know what you're doing. And then they would have started the hors d'oeuvres as they sit down. And the way that you sit, you don't have chairs, but you are kind of on pillows and you lean on your elbow and you eat. Don't Google, because it may be a different elbow. Okay, but it's right here. And uh, he's eating, and the guy over next to you, remember where it says that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham? Yeah, he was eating with him. And so on Christ's right, there is a man that it says his head is on the breast of Christ. Who's that man? John. So he's eating right here. And on the left, there is someone that he will dip in the bowl and hand it to, and that's Judas. And so he's right here with Judas. And so they're beginning to eat, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Surely not I. No, this can't be me. And they're grieved, each one of them. Peter wants to get to the root of the matter and says, John, hey, ask him, who is it? Lord, who is it? It's the one that I dip the bread in and hand it to. Is anybody a painter? If you want to paint that scene, paint it of his eyes meeting the eyes of Judas. And I just think he looks at him. And then before the, he starts the meal and the discourse, Judas is not in fellowship. He has lifted up his heel, he that has broken bread. And Jesus simply looks at him and says, what you do, do quickly. That the you will do, not because Satan has victored, but because I told you to. I am delivered up by the predetermined plan and the knowledge of God. All through the crucifixion, you never get the idea that Jesus is lost. He knows everything that is happening. It is a monstrous victory that God uses evil for his own purposes. What you do, do quickly. And now Judas gets up to leave. 
And in just a few hours, he will go to these people, he will tell them, and he'll bring them. Now, the question is, where are they at the Last Supper? Let me give you a, what I think is your answer right here. Uh, in Acts 1.13, it says that just before Pentecost, that the 12 and 120 others were praying in the upper room. Okay, the place that the upper room took place, they used it to pray at. Because it's a large room. And then in Acts 12 and verse 12, when they're about to bring Peter out to kill him the next morning, it says they are praying in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And so apparently the oldest church there is, is this upper room. And it is believed that it is the house of the parents of John Mark. John Mark's uncle is named Barnabas, who is a Levite. And so they are of a priestly caste. And possibly it is John Mark that is the young boy that is carrying the water. Maybe. Uh, we do know this. Do you remember whenever Christ is taken to, as goes to Gethsemane and the cohort comes out to arrest him, that they take him and take him off. And when they do, a young man runs up. And it says he is wearing a linen shroud. Apparently, John Mark was the waiter at that meal. And he goes to bed. They head off to Gethsemane. John puts on his gown, and he lays there. And all of a sudden, there's the pounding of feet, and he opens up. And here are hundreds of men with torches and swords. Where is Jesus of Nazareth? And Judas says, I know where he is. He always goes to pray with his men, and they go to Gethsemane. And now the young boy takes off and follows after them. He gets to Gethsemane, and as they arrest Christ, it says that the young man rushes out, and they grab the linen shroud, and they pull it off of him, and it falls to the ground. Do you all remember that? And it's believed that the reason is that if indeed John Mark was of the priestly order, if he was with his uncle, a Levite, we don't know. But there is a place in the Old Testament that you take a shroud and you drop it over a sacrifice. Whenever you have the Yom Kippur goat that is put to death and his blood sprinkled, you also have what is called the scapegoat. And you take this other goat, and the high priest lays his hands on him, and you pronounce over him the sins of Israel. And then you take a linen shroud, and you lay it on him. And that goat is led off into the wilderness. And so your sins are not only borne to the cross by the one goat, but they are separated as the east is from the west, and you see them no more. And so it is believed that that shroud is dropped by this child of a priestly order upon the scapegoat who is being led away to die. Interesting. God has everything under control. Are you with me? 
Come back next week. Whatever you do, don't die. Because you need to see what's coming. Father in heaven, we thank you for your infinite grace and mercy. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you that in this most awful of events, you knew everything that was occurring and you did it for us. We thank you. We bless you. And I pray, Lord, if there is a Judas here that merely sees Christ as a wounded man that is of no use to us, that you would lift his eyes to see that the wounds were placed on him by the Father for what he and we did. And might he this day receive you into his heart and be cleansed and washed from his iniquity and his sins borne off as the east is from the west. For in thy name we pray, amen.